Well, today as we look in 1 Kings, I want to start off by saying that there's several lessons that we can learn, several things that we can gather from this passage of Scripture. And one that I want to uh, be very firm about is the fact that God is not a vegetarian. Uh, I want you to know that. God is not a vegetarian. Now, some of you uh, want to be vegetarians. You don't eat meat. You, you know, get very sick on Wednesday nights when we have the, the roast beef or whatnot. And I'm not going to point anybody out, you know, per se. Um, but if the goal of First Baptist Church and the goal of the universal church is to be like God, which how many of us believe that's the case, uh, then we've got to be meat eaters. Uh, it, it's just the way it is. And what we're going to see in First Kings is God is offered a bull. And there's no vegetables on the altar. There's no celery. There's no tomato. There's no Brussels sprouts. There's no asparagus. And what we're going to see in the passage is God not only takes a bite... But God consumes all of it. He devours. So for those of you who want to know the supremacy of a steakhouse, the first steakhouse occurs in 1 Kings chapter 18. God consumes everything on the altar. All the meat is gone. But if we're going to be serious about the scripture today, which we should be, and what we can glean from it, I want to paint the picture of the point that we've gotten to the point in Scripture where Elijah is alone. Elijah is by himself. There is no other prophet except him. And there's a challenge, you see, because as Israel, you know, Israel was always, they're in covenant with God. Uh, from, the, from almost the very beginning, uh, God had a relationship with mankind, and mankind fell through Adam and Eve, and then we have this attempt to always get back in right relationship with God. And so, sort of the way our lives are, is the way Scripture is, there's kind of the ebb and flow of life, and sometimes they're close to God and they get it right, and then sometimes they just completely get it wrong. And as Israel, Israel is fine as long as Israel is isolationist. But when Israel begins to go in and to filter in and other cultures begin to intertwine, and that's exactly what we could say has happened in our own culture, um, things happen. And one of the things that happens is that people begin to take on the customs, traditions, religious views, and values of that culture. And we can even compare that to the modern day and we can say, well, you know, I'm Christian, but I'm an American. And what I want to be very clear about today is to be an American is not to be a Christian. America is a diverse nation. We have all kinds of great beliefs and great freedoms, but not every freedom that we have as citizens of these United States is a God thing. Some of the freedoms that you and I have can actually lead to our harm and actually can be sinful, and they can separate us from the right relationship that we have with the Lord. The Israelites often took in the ideas and the gods and whatnot of other cultures. And so that's what happened. A lot of people began to see, well, you know, there's this, there's this Baal, this Baal worship. Some people pronounce it Baal. Some people pronounce it Baal. doesn't really matter what you pronounce it as long as you know what you mean. Baal is this foreign god, the Canaanite god. And so uh, there are a lot of followers. And so as, we, as this influx of culture happens, more and more followers of God, uh, they kind of, you know, in the very beginning of the, the Old Testament, God presents himself. 
And the people of God, it's not that, you know, there's these other gods around. And this is where we are in, in the scriptures. There's these other gods around. And the thing was that there was a fear not only of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel in this passage, but there was also a fear and respect of other gods. They didn't listen. Nobody wanted to tick off the other gods. And so by way of just own personal belief, there were a lot of people that were following God and they would pursue the one true God, but they didn't want to tick off the other gods in case they happen to be real as well. And so what happens is as we begin to look through the Old Testament and we come into the New Testament, finally there is this uh, this uh, reckoning day where the people realize, no, there is but one God. That's why from the very beginning when, uh, when Moses is up on the mountain and he gets those Ten Commandments, you will have no other gods before me. The supremacy of that statement. And Jesus expounds upon it from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Later in the New Testament he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor yourself. This is the greatest commandment. All the commandments rest on this one. Why? Because when you and I surrender lordship to someone else rather than the one true God, it is always going to lead to something catastrophic. And so the people of Israel, and they, they had a lot of catastrophe in their walk. A lot of catastrophe. Uh, first of all, they were banned out of, uh, out of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And then they're trying to get back in a right relationship. They're captured multiple times. They're captured by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Syrians came in, swooped down, pillar Jerusalem. Then they're uh, captured again in 586 and 587 by the Babylonians. And you would think that they would learn that they need to be in right relationship with God. Likewise, you would think that we would learn and we would understand that we need to be in right relationship with God if we're going to live a prosperous and joyous life in Him. But some of us think that religion or faith is something that we can just kind of grab a hold of or put on on Sunday or on Wednesday or whenever we need to be spiritual and we can take that outfit off when it's convenient for us. There are a lot of people in the church today, attending church today, in sanctuaries today that believe that very thing. And that very thing is what is going to cause something catastrophic in their lives. Because you and I, when we become followers of Christ, when we surrender our lives, when we offer ourselves to the Most High God, we don't get to choose when it's convenient to serve Him, nor should we get to choose when it's not convenient. In other words, Christianity is not an outfit to put on every week. Christianity, following Christ is who we are. Our identity is in Christ alone. To the point that we need to come to the realization that though my name is Todd Michael Hallman, that name, Todd Michael Hallman, means nothing. All that's going to matter in eternity is not what Todd Michael Hallman did in this life. All that's going to matter is, is Christ's identity in Todd Michael Hallman. And has Todd Michael Hallman lost his identity in the person of Jesus Christ? Is, is he, am I so lost in the identity of Christ, if I'm so surrendered into the identity of Christ, that that's what I'm known by? That is the goal of the Christian walk. That people don't know you by you, they know you by the one whom you follow. They know you by the one whom you have surrendered your life to. And that's the goal for our walk. That's the goal of our faith. 
But what I want you to notice is we have this kind of idea in the backdrops of our thinking of Christian faith that because we have surrendered to Christ, because we've walked an aisle, because we've prayed a cute little prayer, because we allegedly have peace with God, because we've climbed into a baptismal pool, because we've been baptized as a believer, because the Holy Spirit, we say, has come into our lives, we believe without a shadow of a doubt that uh, our lives should be easygoing. That, that to be a Christian means that it's going to be easy. You know? and, we, and, we, and that's the kind of way we market Christianity, unfortunately, the way the church has marketed Christianity. That all you have to do is surrender to Christ and your life is going to be great. Well, guess what? That is a lie of the church. Because sometimes you and I, in our pursuit of following Jesus, are going to have a very difficult time. It is not a bed of roses. It does not make you immune from cancer. It does not make you immune to a terminal illness. It does not make you immune to a car accident. It does not make you immune to a disability. It does not make you immune to anything. What it gives is an eternal perspective in the here and now. That you and I are not seeking to go to heaven in the future, but we are seeking to capitalize on heaven today. Heaven in the real world. Heaven in the midst of circumstances. The kingdom of God is not something to look forward to. The kingdom of God is in us as we have trusted in Christ, as we've surrendered our lives, and even as we go through a lot of difficult storms or whatnot. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Christ in the midst of conflict. And so Elijah, he is challenging the 450 prophets of Baal. And he says, you know, let's let's just just cut up a bull. Let's offer a sacrifice. You call on your God. I will call on the Lord. And we'll see who is real. We'll see who answers. So what I want you to know is that followers of God are often considered troublemakers. Did you know that I'm considered a troublemaker? And some of you, I've been in trouble for the last two years, and I've only been here like two years. Um, Followers of God, and listen, let me, this is not about how great Todd is or how great his walk is, because all you have to do is ask my wife. She can tell you, oh, he is a miserable, he fails all the time. Uh, She can give testimony of that. She's shaking her head up in the balcony right now. Uh, And so, uh, but followers of God are often considered troublemakers. I want you to notice what happens in the passage of Scripture here in 1 Kings chapter 18. It says... Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now, why is it that followers of God are considered troublemakers? Well, one is, followers of God refuse to follow suit with the status quo. We we, we refuse to do it. I was telling someone today, I got a phone call two weeks ago from a young lady... And uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even remember her name now, but she asked me, she goes, do you do weddings? I said, I do. And she said, well, I'm interested in getting married. Uh, and I said, well, when are you looking? I'm thinking, you know, probably a year and a half away or whatnot. She goes, well, I'm looking to get married this month. And I said, oh, um, okay, well, I, I require four sessions. Sit down with me and we can talk. And you come in, uh, paperwork. She goes, well, there's something else I need to ask you. And uh, I said, okay. And she goes, well, I don't really know how to ask it. Uh, it's kind of awkward. And so I'm thinking, I'm thinking one of two things. Uh, either she's living with her boyfriend uh, or she's pregnant and wants to know how I feel about that or whatnot. And so I'm, I'm trying to be gracious. I said, I'm sure, you know, what, whatever it is, it, you know, I can, we, we, can, we can talk about it. 
I wasn't prepared for what she was going to tell me. And uh, she said, well, will you marry my partner and myself? And I went, I'm sorry? Will you marry my partner? And I said, well, I'm already married. Uh, I said, uh, but uh, I said, I don't, I don't do. I don't do gay marriages. I, I don't. Well, it, and then it went on. I was telling someone this morning. It went on to the discussion was, well, what is your personal belief? What is, what, what is the church's belief? And I said, well, the church has not officially made a statement. I said, but as an uh, offspring of the church, as an extension of the church, as a representative of the church, even if my personal views were different, I know where the church would stand on this issue. And I said, you need to understand this. Marriage is between a man and woman and God. I do not personally view marriage between same-sex couples. Civil unions, we can discuss that, uh, but I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I cannot concede spiritually on the issue of marriage. Now, some of you may disagree with me on that, and that's okay, because I'm not enforcing it, uh, but this is kind of where I am in this process. And so she said, so do you have gay people in your church? I said, well, honestly, I don't know. I'm sure, we, I'm sure we've had gay people in our church. I said, but it's not something that they pronounce, not something they, you know, whatnot. And she said, well, are you a gay welcoming church? And I said, well, it all depends on what you mean. This conversation went on for 45 minutes. I finally realized uh, about 10 minutes into it that this probably was not someone seeking a marriage. This is someone in the press wanting to know my opinion. And suddenly, in that phone conversation, it dawned on me, oh, my heavens, uh, you know, I'm like standing out on this limb, and it's being uh, hacked away and chopped off. And, and what I'm going to tell you is that the world, listen, there are a lot of cultural trends that sometimes we have an affinity. And, and here's the thing, I am sorry that people feel excluded in our world. I never want people to feel excluded. But I'm never going to be sorry enough for the exclusion in order to include and compromise on what the gospel is, what the gospel stands for, and the principles of Jesus Christ. I think we should be gracious at every day. Gracious, gracious to the ultimate extent. But you and I cannot be so gracious to cheapen God's grace and therefore just throw the baby out with the bathwater. The church must be defined by standards. And the standards, listen, it's not about a Southern Baptist convention making rules. It's not about a First Baptist church making rules. When we go before people and when we call on the name of the Most High God and we say, Lord, we want you to show up. We want you to reveal yourself. We are surrendering all control of what we want. Our role in following God is to make sure that he's given us his word. This is the guidebook. This is the guidebook. You and I don't have anything. There's no other thing, uh, no other book ever written or collection of materials ever written that is inspired in this way. It is the living, breathing word of God and we must surrender ourselves to it. Which means, if we're honest, that there's sometimes that we read scripture and it's warm and fuzzy and makes us feel good. But there are other times... We just feel troubled in heart. I don't have the solutions to all the world's problems. I can't give you a definitive answer about everything you would want to ask me. But I can point you to the source of ultimate truth. And our hope and our prayer is that as we travel through these difficult waters of faith and of culture and as we seek not only to empower people, as we seek to encourage people, as we're gracious to people, as we love the way in which we've been loved, as we give out unconditional love because we've been recipients of the unconditional love, that by our love, by our actions of love, 
people will know that He is Lord. We never want to be a distraction to what God is doing. Followers, though, of God are often considered troublemakers. And I've said this before, that even people, pastors in this area, even in our own denomination... Uh, they don't agree with me a lot about a lot of things. And they, they call me the little troublemaker. Uh, and I don't mean to be a troublemaker. I'm just a follower of God. And I can't in good conscience surrender what I consider to be paramount to the gospel. The gospel, listen ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is not inclusive of everybody. The gospel is exclusive. It is exclusive to those that will surrender themselves to the lordship of Christ. And re listen, regardless of the way people struggle, whether it's with pornography or sexuality or whatnot, listen, someone comes in here and says, you know, I struggle with my sexuality. I struggle with who I am. I struggle with my identity. Struggling is not the issue. Everybody struggles. But the question is, do you know Jesus Christ? And are you committed to living a life in him? Are you committed to following and pursuing him and making sure that your life follows suit with the word that he's given us? This is the truth. This is what we must follow. Listen, it would have been very easy for Elijah to say, look, I'm the only one left. I love you, Lord. Praise Jesus. I'm out of here. I mean, I want you to think about it. One person against 450 prophets, not counting all the other people around, and King Ahab. I mean... We're talking about Elijah, the peon, follower of God, in the midst of Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal and all these other people. One man up against all these people. All those people are camped over here. And here's little old Elijah. Well, you fix the bull and let's put it on the altar and let's see what happens. Followers of God are often considered troublemakers because we don't follow suit with the status quo. Followers of God are also, uh, followers of God make great citizens of our nation and of our culture, of the countries that they're a part of, as long as the laws and rules align with God's law. Look back in the Old Testament to Daniel. Daniel was a great statesman until the king issued an edict. That he had to pay tribute and worship the king rather than worship God. It came into conflict. Listen, followers of God are great statesmen. Followers of God are great people in the eyes of the country. Listen, we have great citizens in the United States that are followers of God. But our allegiance, listen, our allegiance is not to the United States of America. Our allegiance is to the kingdom that's not of this world. Our allegiance is to Christ. So regardless of whether the Democrats are right or the Republicans are right or the Independents are right, it makes no difference what matters is, are we right with God? That's what matters. Followers of God have an allegiance to a higher power that supersedes any of our commitments in this world. And I even think about my calling. You know, it used to be when, when I first began in ministry, and my wife could also tell you this, I was kind of a people pleaser. Whatever you wanted, I'm, mm, let's, I'll make it happen. I, I could, the word no was not in my vocabulary. Yes, whatever, whatever you want. I'll make sure, I will do it, I will do it. And what ended up happening is I had good intentions. And I would say, I would say to people, I'll try to do that. Like if Peggy Holly says, will you come to dinner tonight? I'll try to do that, Peggy. I'll try to do that. 
and, but it gave me a kind of an out because if it didn't happen, I said, well, I said I would try. I didn't say I would do it. And my wife called me on it. She goes, look, you need to leave, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't say I'll try because all the people here, when you say I try, is that you're going to do it. And so it appears that you've lied when you don't follow up. I'm like, well, I can't say no. Yes, I can. No. You and I need to understand that we don't need to do everything that's good. We need to pursue God in all that he is. All that he is. Ahab and his people had forsaken God by worshiping false gods. The real troubler in Israel was not Elijah. The real troublemaker was Ahab, the prophets of Baal, and the other religious establishments. So followers of God are often considered troublemakers. So if you're a troublemaker, welcome to the club. Uh, We meet every week on Sunday and Wednesday. The other thing is that we think in ourselves that when we sign up to be a Christian, when we walk an aisle and we become an integral part of the family of God, uh, that there's power in numbers. Sometimes... But sometimes not. As a matter of fact, followers of God are often outnumbered. But you and I are never overpowered. It's one thing to be outnumbered. It's another thing to be outpowered, overpowered. Elijah, as one person, stood up before the king, stood up before the prophets of Baal, stood up before the people, and he gives... He gives this pronouncement as the only prophet of God left. And the odds are against him. But God shows up amidst the odds. And what you notice in chapter 18 is he identifies himself, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left in verse 22. But Baal has 450. Baal has a more populous crowd of support. God, the Lord, only has me. And then he says, get two bulls for us. And I love this dialogue because it says, let Baal's prophets choose, uh, choose one for themselves, let them cut into pieces. And so he does that. And then he says, uh, you know, then you call on the name of your God and let's see who shows up. So they call on the name of their God from morning till noon. Okay, now I, I love this because you've got 450 prophets dancing around, la, 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 la around the altar, and you've got Elijah standing over here. And Elijah, remember, is not a Baptist. So Elijah is sitting over here with a margarita, and he's watching. He's watching this unfold, okay? Now, some of you are not going to hear anything else I said because I said that Elijah was drinking a margarita. That's not in Scripture. I'm just adding, so maybe I'm sinning. But anyway, I'm, I'm telling you that because Elijah is cool, calm, and collective. He is cool as a cucumber as he sits over beside the side. And listen, how do I know that? Look at the humor of Scripture. Listen, God's Word is serious, but God's Word is fun. Would you notice what he says? He says, I love this. He says, uh, so they called on uh, Baal from morning to noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. And he says... Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. I mean, perhaps he's pontificating. Perhaps he's thinking deeply about some things. And so, or maybe, 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 maybe he's busy. Or maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's traveling somewhere today. And you just can't get his attention. 
And so when that didn't work, he said, well, maybe Baal is snoring somewhere and he has to be awakened in verse 27. So the people shouted louder and louder. And what did it do? When, when, they, when, they, have resolved, when they had diminished everything that they could do to get Baal's attention, hello, Baal, show up! There's nothing else for them to do. What do they do? They take out their swords and their daggers. They start slicing themselves open. And the Bible says that they did this more and more and more until blood flowed. They were desperate for their God to show up. Now, the funny part of it is Elijah toning. The sad part of it is here you have people that are desperate for their God to show up. And he doesn't show. How many of you have been desperate for God and he didn't show up? the way you wanted him to. Be careful what you ask God to show up for. These people were absolutely beside themselves because they had put their faith, their confidence, their trust in this false God. They had danced around from from morning till noon. They had called on him. They shouted louder. They had danced around it. All these things to get Baal's attention. They were taunted by the one miserable peon follower of God, prophet of God, Elijah. And then they cut themselves. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. Listen, they had done it all day long. And the interesting thing is I've been on Mount Carmel. When you go up on Mount Carmel, what you see is the valley. I mean, you can see for miles. So I, can just, I can just picture this happening, unfolding, this unfolding drama of all these people calling, calling, calling on this God that's never going to show up. But thanks be to God, because when we call on our God, He shows up victoriously every time. Every time. He may not show up the way I want or the way you want. He may not reveal himself the way we prayed for him to reveal himself. But make no mistake, there's no such thing as a prayer that goes unanswered. God answers every prayer. God reveals himself every day in extraordinary ways. Do we sense it? Do we see it? Are we anticipating it? A follower of God will anticipate God's work. In the world. Because followers of God, they're often outnumbered, but they're never overpowered. And so Elijah says to the people, when there was no response, and no one answered, and no one paid attention, Elijah said to everybody, come here to me. Does that sound like Jesus? Does that sound like somebody else? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Elijah says, come to me. Because why? Because where Elijah was is where God was going to show up. And these people who were weary, these people that were watching these prophets, these false prophets of Baal who were growing weary in their fellowship needed to have somebody real to come to. So Elijah says to them, come to me. Come to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. They had even torn it down. And then Elijah took 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And listen now, so we've got these 12 stones, okay, in a round circle. 
Then he dug a trench around, an outer perimeter around those stones. A big ditch. We'll just say a ditch. Okay? And he arranged the wood on top of the stones. He cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he said, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So you've got the bull, you've got the wood, you've got the stones, you've got the ditch. The wood is soaking wet, the bull is soaking wet, the stones are soaking wet, the ground is soaking wet, and the trench is filled with water. Why does he do that? Because Elijah wants to know that when he wants the people to know that when he calls on the Lord, there'll be no mistake, there'll be no magic, there'll be no mistake that it is the Lord God who is going to act in human history. And so Elijah does this. They do just as he said. And then he says, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward. Listen to me, people of God. When you and I are followers of Christ, God has not called us to live in the shadows. Sometimes God is calling us to step forward. Sometimes God is calling us to take the lead. Sometimes God is calling us to show up in a mighty way, to call on the name of our Lord and to see what happens. This is an amazing story in 1 Kings chapter 18. Why? Because God showed up in an amazing way. But it's also amazing because the man of God, the man of God, made himself available, anticipated what was going to happen and followed suit with the divine will of the Most High God, he poured water. Listen, think about it. You've got 450 prophets of a false God. If God doesn't show up, what do you think is going to happen to Elijah? He's going to be killed. He laid it all on the line. Here's the spiritual ramifications of that. If you and I are wanting to attain greatness in the kingdom of God, if you and I truly want to be followers of Jesus Christ, it's going to require us to lay it all on the line. No reservations. All the chips in. And you're trusting God with the result. And that's exactly what Elijah does. Elijah puts his life on the line He waters down all these things. There's no way fire is going to burn a wet altar, wet wood, wet ditch. But then look what happens. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am what? Your servant and have done all these things at your command. Make sure that you're leading out of a calling. Otherwise, hang it up. And then he says, answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people, why? Not answer me so that you can show your greatness. Not answer me so that I can be great. Not answer me so that I can look and be esteemed highly amongst these 455, 600, 700 people that are in attendance to this event. No, no. Answer me, Lord, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts 
back again. God never reveals himself to show pomp and circumstance. God always reveals himself to touch people's hearts. So that those who are weary and heavy laden, so those who are on their desperate end of things, can trust, surrender, and become a child of God. The odds were against him. But Elijah rose above the odds. And then I want you to notice in verse 38, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell. And it burned up the sacrifice. That's the first stake. Tire bull's gone. It burned up the wood. By the way, it was soaking wet. It burned up the stones. Hello. It burned up the soil. That was wet. And... It licked up the water in the trench. What should that communicate? Ladies and gentlemen, when we go before the Lord, and as I've said, when God says he wants you to lay it all down, he wants us to lay it all down, he doesn't want a little bit of you here and a little bit of you there. He's not interested in a partial sacrifice He doesn't want your Christian devotion. He doesn't want your spiritual walk. He doesn't want your spiritual journey. He wants you. And when God, when the God of heavens, when the God of this universe shows up and you and I have laid it all on the altar, there's nothing left because God consumes it all. He consumes the good. He consumes the bad. He consumes the ugly so that there is nothing of ourselves left over and that all that we have is what he gives to us. The message of the gospel is so in this passage. The message of hope is in this word. Because God, listen, God is interested in finding people that are pursuing false gods. God is interested in having hearts changed. And our invitation today is simply this. You may be here this morning and you've accepted Christ. And remember I talked a little bit earlier about baggage that you and I carry. And a lot of times what we have, folks, is we come to this altar. This is kind of, this, this, this platform right here, this area is the altar. What the altar is, is that's where God shows up in dramatic ways. That's why, yes, you can make a decision in the seat. But this place, we kind of carve out in the sanctuary. And we say, this is the place where God meets people. Because this is the place where people fall down in adoration of a most high God. And God meets them in their depravity. God meets them in their circumstances. And God's desire is to move in people's lives. So many of us come to this altar carrying burdens and thoughts and problems and situations and prayer requests. And then we're here and we lay it all down. We we go into a time of worship. We have prayer and it makes us feel good because we're emotional and we feel like God is moving. We feel the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But then when the invitation's over, we'll go back to our seat when our time's done. And we'll sit comfy in the pew until the minister whoever's leading the worship service calls us to stand and we do a benediction. And here's what we do spiritually, ladies and gentlemen. When the benediction is given and the last amen is spoken, we spiritually step up from our seat. We go back to the altar. We pick up our rubbish 
and we walk out the sanctuary. God doesn't want you to carry your burdens anymore. God wants to show up in a dramatic way and turn your heart back again. Quit holding on to things that you should have let go of eons ago. Don't hold yourself victim to the very things that God and Christ have freed you from through his amazing grace. Elijah, a follower of God, he was a troublemaker. Elijah, the follower of God, went against the odds. And though he was outnumbered, he was not overpowered. Elijah, the prophet of God, stepped up, stepped in, and became the person to speak for God, to call on the name of the Most High. And as a result, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel was made known. Has God been made known in your life? When you surrendered yourself on the altar of Christ, did you go back and pick up your baggage, your junk? Or did you allow God to consume it and take it all? That's the question. Either the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over all, or he's not Lord at all. There's no halfway to this. And God's calling First Baptist Church and the people that are here today, you're here for a reason and a purpose. He wants you to know that you are well loved. He wants you to know that you need to be in a place where you can be encouraged. He wants you to know that He is God. Regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what your doctors tell you, regardless of what you're dealing with, He is God. He is in control. But is He in control? Of your life. The invitation this morning, we're going to sing, We Fall Down. If you're here this morning and you need to fall down before Him, this altar's open. If you're here this morning and you want to become an integral part of First Baptist Church, we would love to have you. It's a great place to be. It's not the only place you can be. But we're excited because God's doing amazing things. He's turning people's hearts back again. He's showing up in amazing ways. And He can show up in your life as well. So in this invitation, I simply ask, won't you come? Won't you come? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together. Lord, as you present yourself and as your word has been given, we pray, Lord, that you would find us faithful, that as we respond to this invitation, as the Holy Spirit has moved in our midst, that we will come for those who need to come to the altar, that we'll do that. For those of us who need to surrender to the Lordship of Christ for the first time. For those of us who need to recommit ourselves, kind of refocus our attention. For those of us who want to be a part of this church family, we welcome you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you above all for Jesus. And God, we thank you for showing up. We thank you for creating a generation of troublemakers for the kingdom. Father, thank you for your witness. Thank you for the hope that you give in Christ. And as we gather today and as we sing, we fall down. May we do just that in spirit and in truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Won't you stand with me as we sing our invitational song, We Fall Down? If you need to respond, won't you come during this time of invitation?